Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, says, Now the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. One of the things that you find talked about on the news quite a bit with the president that we have today is the making of a deal. In fact, we have a president that wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. That's a lot of his emphasis as he's a businessman throughout his life has been on making good deals for himself and for his family. And that is also a big part of the pledge that he's made to us as a nation is that he would make good deals on America's behalf. We see him putting forth great effort to travel the world and to make good deals for us with other countries and in foreign affairs and local deals that would prosper our economy, that would bring jobs to the United States. And at any given time that you want to turn on the news, you can watch debates about those deals, about whether the deals that he's making are good and who they're good for or not. But you know what? There's something in people that likes a good deal. Nobody wants to do like I usually do. Even I don't want to do like I usually do. When it comes to vehicles and stuff like that, I usually buy high, sell low. That's just how it works out. Boy, if you can get that pair of pants that's hanging on that rack for $15 off, well, boy, then that's a whole lot better deal than paying price. In fact, I know a lot of people that I talk to, they're like, oh, I never pay full price for anything. There's just something in us that wants a good deal, that's looking for that good deal out there. Well, as we look at the book of Hebrews, that's really what it's about. The author of the book of Hebrews is writing to these people and he's, and he's telling them, look, Jesus is the good deal. He is the better deal here. These people are kind of a lot wafting between two issues here. On the one hand, they've at least professed to have put their faith in Jesus Christ and started to follow Him as their Lord and Savior, their Jewish people, so as their Messiah. But at the same time, the temple is still there, the priesthood is still there offering sacrifices, Their family may still be there, their extended family. Their friends are still participating at the temple. And so they got a lot of pressure to go back to the temple and to stick with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, you're foolish if you do that. The better deal is Jesus Christ. In fact, that's one of the key words of the book of Hebrews, is better, superior, more excellent showing how Jesus is superior to anything that they had in the Old Testament. In fact, if you'll remember, a lot of the outline of the book of Hebrews is showing how Jesus is superior to angels, He's superior to Moses, He's superior to the priesthood. Now we're getting to the point where He's superior to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament promises. In fact, He's the fulfillment of those. And so what the author is trying to tell those people is, you stick with Christ, that is the better deal. You know, it's the same thing He's telling us. 
I know sometimes in our life we get pressures and temptations that tempt us to turn, maybe not follow Christ so closely, maybe turn and go back to a way of life that we had before we were trusting in Christ, not care so much about the things of God. The message is the same for us today as it was for them when it was first penned. Jesus Christ is the better deal. And that's what we're going to consider here this morning is this better deal. The first thing that we want to look at as we go through this passage is we want to recognize the logic. What is his flow of thought? What is his main point? What is his reasoning as he goes through this passage and he presents to these people that look, Jesus is so much better of a deal than they had in the Old Testament. It's a better covenant enacted on better promises with better sacrifices. What is the flow of thought as he argues with them? Maybe I should say he's arguing for them. He's trying to convince them that look, this is in your best interest. And you know, that, that really, when you think of that, that's kind of the essence of faith, is it not? Is to recognize that no matter what price you got to pay, no matter what is threatening in your life, to recognize that God is always the better deal. That He is all, that is better for me. As John Piper has so often put it, He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Chapter 8, verse 13, He says, In speaking of the new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. He's comparing this old covenant given through the law and the new covenant that we have being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he says the old one is being made obsolete. It's vanishing away. But then he kind of repeats the same idea when we get up to chapter 10 and verse 9. It says, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. The old covenant is being done away with to establish this new covenant that is here. We already saw this kind of reasoning back in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 18. Remember when it was talking about the priesthood and it was referencing this character Melchizedek? It says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. And the whole point that he's making is that the, the weak one and the useless one is being set aside for the new one that is productive is here in chapter 8, verse 1, we see that he's continuing that line of reasoning because he says, now the point in what we are saying is this. In other words, he's continuing the point that he was already making in chapter 7, but using it of the priesthood. Now he's doing the same thing with the whole covenant that included the priesthood. That old covenant is vanishing away. And he's going to give several reasons that that needs to vanish away and the new covenant will take its place. The first reason that he gives that that will vanish away is because of its intention. This is found in the first six verses which we already read. Notice the words that keep popping up repeatedly in this passage. It says in verse 5, They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent which was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern. Now, let's skip ahead a little bit. We see it repeated in other places as well. Look at chapter 9, verse 23 and following. It says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. And then skip up to chapter 10, verse 1. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Notice the words that kept popping up there. Copies, patterns, shadows. We see the intention 
God put together the law and He gave them the priesthood. His intention would never be that that was completely sufficient for all time to pay for our sins. In fact, in the passage here, it says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sins. It's not equivalent to trade the life of a bull or a goat for a human life. If those sacrifices all through the years, if all that shedding of the blood was never to be sufficient for our eternal salvation, then what was the point? The point was that they would function as a copy, a shadow, a pattern. They would draw a picture for us of the reality. In fact, that's what it's in contrast to. Notice that just as he kept referring to the things of the Old Testament as copies, shadows, patterns, they're pictures. He kept referring, keeps referring to the things of Christ as the true form, the reality, the heavenly realities. And so he's saying Christ is the reality. All of those sacrifices and the priesthood beforehand were a picture of what Jesus would do for us one day. So it was never God's intention that that Old Testament priesthood would be the full answer. Rather, but those would be like a road sign. They would point to the answer, which is in Christ. So when these people were saying, well, do I go back to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Sacrifices? He's saying, why would you do that? They were just here to point to Christ. Do you want the real thing or do you want the imitation? One of the things, I like shellfish. I like crab. I love, Boy, if you're going to give me fresh crab legs all steamed and ready to go or imitation crab meat, there's no question. Give me the real stuff. Well, that's what these people are being told. Look, you're being offered two deals here. Which is the better deal? Do you want the, the picture? Do you want the copy that was just pointing to the reality? Or do you want the reality? Do you want the true form? Do you want the truth? Christ is the truth. So we see it expressed in his intention. Not only do we see it expressed in the intention, but we also see it expressed in the replacement. If it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for the second, he tells us at the end of verse 7 there. And what he's going to do for the next several verses, on up through verse 13, is he's going to point back to Jeremiah. The time of Jeremiah the prophet, Israel has been breaking the covenant repeatedly, and God finally says, enough of the old covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant. The old covenant is going to pass away. We need a new covenant. Now that's what he quotes. He quotes from Jeremiah 31 as we look through the passage in chapter 8. And notice what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now the point that he's making. New covenant. What does a new covenant do? New covenant replaces the old covenant. So what the author's doing is he's saying, look, if the old covenant was good enough, then why would he have spoken of a new covenant? If we're going to have a new covenant, obviously the old covenant isn't good enough. It's the same thing that he did when he was talking about the priesthood. He says, if the priesthood was good enough, then why did he promise in the book of Psalms, why did he promise a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek? It's the same thing that he's doing now. If the old covenant was good enough, it would have remained. But the fact that God said He had a replacement, that He was going to replace the old covenant with a new, is proof that we have a better deal in Jesus Christ. Not only is He giving Him a replacement, but He uses an analogy. We get into chapter 9, verses 1-10, through and basically what He does is He just starts to itemize the furniture within the holy place. 
right? And remember, we've talked about that before, how the temple, the temple was this huge outer wall around the whole thing. And when you first came in one of the 12 gates into the temples, you entered an area called the court of the Gentiles. Then you'd enter into the court of Israel. And men and women could go in there and they had each had a section. The court of the men, the court of the women. And then you'd enter into the holy place. In the holy place, only the priests could go. And then finally, there was the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies signified the presence of God. His throne was in there. His mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant. To that place, only the high priest could go and only once a year and only with the proper sacrifices. And what did all that signify? That access to God was not available yet. It got increasingly restrictive the closer you got to the presence of God. And he said the fact that that outer room, the holy place, he said the fact that that was still there was a symbol of this present age. A symbol of the age where you were not yet able to go into the Holy of Holies, not yet able to access the very presence of God. And that's exactly why when Jesus died on that cross, the curtain that was the door into the Holy of Holies was ripped in half. It was swung wide open. So access to God was now completely available through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through this better deal is exactly what he's telling them in this passage. And so he gives them that analogy. Well, he also uses the concept of a will. As we get on farther into uh, chapter 9 and, uh, and on into chapter 10, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and, and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, the point that he's making in this passage is he compares it to a will. When somebody makes a will, it is a declaration of their will, of their desire. What do I want to happen with my stuff when I die? The will doesn't do any good until you die. It doesn't have any effect at all. Why? Because you're still living. You can still voice your word. Your signature is what is important. But once you die and you can't give your word, you can't make your signature anymore... Your last will and testament, your last word on the matter is what they go by. And so when you die, your will kicks in and expresses your desire. That's what's in place here. When God gave them the old covenant, something had to die. So when God had Moses write out his covenant, and then the leaders had to sign it, an animal was sacrificed, and the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the book that they all agreed to, and it was sprinkled on the people. It was sealing the deal. Something died and the will was carried out. He says that's the same thing that's happening now. Jesus Christ has died. He died on the cross for us. And so now His will, His desire is to be carried out. And what is His desire? His desire, His will is this new covenant. Notice he's going to quote a couple more passages. We get to look in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. Consequently, When Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. We can see the will of God communicated within his word. What was God's will? Was God's will the sacrifices and the burnt offerings? No, because God himself said, sacrifices and burnt offerings I have not desired. That's not what I want. But instead, he says, but a body you have made for me. Christ taking on a human body and going to the cross. He's saying, I don't want the sacrifices. I don't want the Old Testament rituals. I want the reality of Christ laying down his body for us. And then and he expresses God's will in that way. In the last part of that, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me. So he's saying Christ fulfilled the will of God. His will is the new covenant, the better deal that we have in Jesus Christ. That death enacted the will of God. And what is the will of God? That we would be delivered by the one-time sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. The other thing that he points out to is repetition. The Old Testament covenant offers sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Now when you think about that, what does it communicate that the sacrifice were repeated over and over and over? Doesn't it communicate that the sacrifices were not sufficient? That it didn't work? It's like I remember I've told a story. We heated our house with a wood stove and there were a few stacks of wood. The freshest stuff was the farthest from the house. And then right by the back door was the oldest stuff, the seasoned, ready to be burned. And it was my job to move the stacks so that they worked for our family. And my dad was particular about how you had to stack the wood. You had to crisscross the ends. The ones by my house are the same way today. You had to crisscross the ends because otherwise you go to stack wood and it has, starts out at the bottom here and it just kind of goes like this, right? Can't fit as much wood that way. Would have satisfied me just fine, but not my dad. So he had to crisscross the ends so he could go straight up and have the stack straight across so he could fit the most amount of wood. And I was grumbling, didn't want to be stacking wood, and I'm back there and I'm just kind of piling it up. And my dad comes out and says, well, now you can do it again. And so I had to do it again. I, I still remember him saying it. Sorry, but if you'd done it right the first time, all the teenagers were on their eyes in their head, you wouldn't have to do it again. But to you, teenager, life gets better. I became a father. And I had three boys that were out there stacking the wood. And they didn't like it. And they were grumbling about it. And I took a few minutes and said, do you crisscross the ends out? You do it like this? I showed them. And then let them have at her. And they're kind of fighting and grumbling with each other. Talking about how unfair dad is. And I went back in the house. I come back a little bit later and the pile's kind of leaning away from the garage and the ends aren't crisscrossed. And I said, look at that. And give a little nudge and it all falls down. I said, sorry, but see you get to say it someday. (laughs) Things come around. My dad mowed my yard this last month. Things come around. (laughs) You're better. And uh, I told him, I said, the only problem is you already get up too early. I don't get to come and jerk you out of bed on Saturday morning to do it, but... The point was, you know, if it was done right the first time, it wouldn't have to have been done again in that instance. That's exactly what he's saying about these sacrifices. The fact that they're repeated over and over and over shows that they're insufficient. It shows that they didn't work. It wasn't a lasting sacrifice. But on the other hand, when it's describing the sacrifice of Christ, which it actually did this for the first time back in toward the end of chapter 7, when you go back through, you can see everywhere I kind of highlight things that are repeated in my Bible so they stand out to me. But everywhere there's orange here is emphasizing the fact that Christ's sacrifice is once and for all. And that's the point that he's making all the way through this passage. Is he's saying those sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over, which tells us what? They didn't work. 
Christ went to the cross once. Done. It paid for all the sins of the previous covenant, he said. All the people under the old covenant received the forgiveness of sins in it. It paid for all the sins of all the way up to us, 2,000 years after the sacrifice and beyond. In fact, it's on into the future. Your future sins that you haven't even thought of or committed yet are already paid for under the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. One sacrifice at one time by one person covered all of us. Completely sufficient. That's exactly the point that he's, that he's making here with this repetition. Look at all the repetition. Look at all those animals. Obviously an animal doesn't cut it or it would have stopped. But instead, what does all that repetition do? He says it's a reminder. And we'll talk about the, the emphasis of that in just a moment. We see his logic. He's saying it's like the old covenant. It was never intended to be sufficient. It was a, to be a picture. There was a replacement that God had already spoke of that shows that the old covenant would come to an end. There was the analogy that he gave of the temple and how that was in place that's going to be done away with. There was the exercise of a will with Christ's death that kicked in God's will. That God's will would happen and what is God's will? A body you've prepared for me that Christ would die for our sins. And the repetition, through the repetition we see the weakness and all that. So we see his flow of thought, how the, the new covenant is designed to, to replace the old covenant. The old covenant was designed to shadow or to be a copy of the new covenant, to picture it. But now what is its effect? Because here's a bigger part of the reason that the old covenant is less and the new covenant is better is because of the effect that it has in our lives. What we see in the effect is we have the cans versus the cannots. All the way through here, it's showing what the old covenant couldn't do. And at the same time, he's saying that Jesus Christ did do it. And notice that the old covenant, as we look in chapter 9 and verse 9, it says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Then notice also in chapter 10 and verse 1, says the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And then in verse 4 of chapter 10, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then down in verse 11 it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. All those sacrifices that were done in the Old Testament, they could never take away sins. They could never make you perfect. They could never perfect your conscience. And all that is in the middle of this talking about Christ's once-for-all sacrifice that does all of those things. Let's see, what are these effects that it has in our life? The first effect that we will look at is salvation. Chapter 9, verse 12 it says he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. In verse 15, it says that he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Chapter 10, verse 10. It says, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And in verse 14 of chapter 10, he says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now he uses a few different words in there that I kind of put all together. Redeemed, that we get this redemption in Christ. We receive this eternal inheritance. 
that we get sanctified, which means to be set apart for God. All these things are words that speak of our salvation. And he says Christ accomplished that completely through his once for all death on the cross. Not only do we see salvation, but he mentioned an inheritance in chapter 9 and verse 15. This eternal inheritance that we receive, that we're all looking forward to. In fact, he describes believers in this passage as those who are eagerly awaiting him. You know, that's what I think about sometimes. I kind of check my own heart. Am I eagerly awaiting him? Am I longing for his return? Otherwise, I'm probably getting distracted by some other things. But not only do we have the inheritance, a pure conscience. I I love this. Look at chapter 9 and verse 9. It says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And then when we get to verse 14, it says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Chapter 10 and verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. You see, the, the point that he's making when a few minutes ago when we were talking about all the repetition, the point that he makes in there is that during in the Old Covenant, you could never have a clear conscience. You could never say, look, my sin's been dealt with clean. I can forget about it and move on. You couldn't do that. Why? Because you offered another sacrifice for your sin and another sacrifice for your sin and another sacrifice for your sin. If those sacrifices would have worked, wouldn't they have quit? Wouldn't they have quit offering them? Because the believer would have lost consciousness of his sin. He would no longer be conscious of it, no longer bothered by it, troubled by it. And he says that through the death and resurrection of Christ, we can have a conscience that is purified. A pure conscience. Now, uh, well, I've almost said I don't know about you, but I think I probably do know about you a little bit. I assume you're kind of like me. I've had sins in my life that I could beat myself up over. And I beat myself up over them even though I've already confessed them to God. Even though I've repented of those sins and moved on in my life, there's been times in my life where I'll think about those things again and I'll kind of beat myself up over them all over again. Shouldn't happen. Not that we don't learn lessons from them. We should learn the lessons from them. But there's no point in getting beat up over them. You want to know why? Because Christ was already beat up for that sin. He was already whipped and bruised and drug out of town with a cross and nailed to the cross. He already took all the beating up that needs to happen over any of my sins that I've ever committed or ever will commit. And so beating up myself doesn't serve any purpose, no function. If I truly acknowledge, if I recognize that Christ, once and for all sacrifice, is completely sufficient to completely take away of my sin. The Bible says it's buried in the depths of the deepest sea. It has been separated as far from me as the east is from the west. When I recognize that to be true, there really isn't anything to bring up before God anymore, is there? So it shouldn't even really cross my mind anymore. It shouldn't bother me at all. In fact, if it is bothering me, then I'm not thinking about things right. Because Christ's sacrifice was so completely sufficient that it's taken care of it. So it's gone. It's removed. I don't have to think about it anymore. Where else can you get a deal like that? Where else can you get a deal where he says, I'll give you eternal life and a pure conscience. You don't even have to think about it again. And I'll take all of your suffering, all the punishment for your sin, all the wrath of God that was upon you. I'll take it all upon me. I'll take that. You take this. You cannot find a better deal than that. And that's the whole point that he's making in this passage. We get that pure conscience. We can be completely free from the feelings of guilt, not by ignoring them, but by turning away from them and embracing Christ and recognizing the sufficiency of his sacrifice on our part. And lastly, the other thing that he points out through the passage is forgiveness. We'll go just to the very last verse of this passage. 
It says in chapter 10, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's a really cool thought. He's been talking about these sacrifices that the priests have offered. And he said, you know what? They offer so many sacrifices, you can never have a clearing conscience because they're a continual reminder of how far you fall short. But in the once and for all sacrifice, we have forgiveness. Well, if you have forgiveness, the sacrifices end. If you've been forgiven of all of your sin, what is the point of bringing a sacrifice? Why would you bring one? You know, I I think sometimes with our sins, I think that's the way God... I'd love to see the look on his face sometime. When I come before him again with a sin that I've already confessed and repented from, been made right in, and I come before him and I go to bring it up again, I say, God, I'm really sorry. And he says, for what? Why are you here offering me another confession? There's nothing to confess. It's already done. Right? Sometimes we get so focused on the holiness of God and is separate from sinners that we feel like we, we can never measure up. Sometimes people get on the other side and they feel like they continue to live in their sin and God's just fine with them. The truth of the matter is God is never happy with us living in sin. He's always calling us to repentance. But when we have repented, He has extended His forgiveness to us from that once and for all sacrifice. It really is done. It really is over. We don't need to continue to suffer for it. It's a thing of the past. It's forgiven. 